0: Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 36, Burn to Ashes. For as much as there hath been much money laid out for several persons within this town by the order and appointment of Mr. Bailiff's in the searching, watching, and further prosecuting of diverse persons of this town suspected for being witches, and in the bringing of them to a legal trial at this sessions, it is now therefore ordered that the charge of searching watching and prosecuting all such persons shall be borne by the inhabitants of this town as a general charge from a resolution by the ipswich authorities facing the growing expense of pursuing witch trials it is strange to tell what superstitious opinions affections relations are generally risen amongst us since the witch came into the country from the writings of john gall minister at Great Storton and opponent of the Witchfinders. The multitude without order take women, when it is said that they are witches, and throw them into a river to try if they will swim. From a report given to Parliament on the escalating events in the county of Kent. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Last time, we heard about the first trials that Matthew Hopkins and John Stern attended in the summer of 1645, at Chelmsford in Essex and Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk. The Essex eyes was presided over by the Earl of Warwick, a man completely unqualified to adjudicate a playground argument, let alone the trial of dozens of people facing capital punishment. As we learned, Warwick had no idea about precedent, or procedure, or what really the law was, and his inexperience partly explains the court's acceptance of legally dubious and outright illegal evidence. When even Warwick himself realised that maybe the high number sentenced to die was unusual, and personally requested clemency for several of the people he himself had condemned, the authorities in London took notice of the goings-on in East Anglia, and of the so-called Witchfinder General. After debates in Parliament following the publication of numerous reports detailing the growing witch hunt, the customary Azais authorities were recommissioned into a triumvirate of lawyers and priests, authorised under an Oye and terminer to try and dampen this worrying grassroots witch hunt. While still condemning over a dozen witches to death, Hopkins and Stern were indirectly criticised for their methods and motivations by the commission, but were otherwise allowed to continue their work unimpeded. The assize was suspended due to the war, and those awaiting trial were transferred back to Ipswich. One escaped, and at least two others were later tried and hanged, but a large amount were kept imprisoned in Ipswich jail and would later die. They had never faced a jury or a judge, but had been condemned to death nevertheless. Further fallout from the Suffolk Eyes was the order given by Judge Godbold that the communities that brought charges of witchcraft to court would be charged a fee for their processing. Professor Gaskell points out that for towns and villages already stretched thin in manpower and materials due to the war, an additional cost was often too much to bear. Some communities ceased hunting for their witches, others grumbled over the debt they already owed to the witchfinders. Holding the Azize was itself an expensive effort, the cost for keeping Godbold and the other commissioners for their stay in Suffolk came to at least £100,000 in modern sterling. This isn't counting food, drink, transport, accommodation, stationery, or any other miscellaneous requirement for those facing trial, nor those administering them. We will look further at the costs of the witch hunt later on. Hopkins and Stern had departed Bury St. Edmund's shortly after the first executions, and continued to work independently of one another. In Yarmouth, Hopkins came across a woman who had confessed to, after failing to murder a man and his maid because their faith was too strong, using a wax effigy of the man's 18-month-old son. She claimed that the devil, in the form of a handsome black man, gave her the effigy, and told her to stab it with a pin and to bury it in the nearby churchyard. This type of maleficium we have seen before, many times in the episodes on classical witchcraft, but also when covering magical plots against the Tudor monarchs. When the designated spot was later dug up and no doll was found, it was explained away as, quote, it was so wasted that they lost the relics of it in the digging, or removed by the devil, or whatever else the reason, end quote. The woman, Elizabeth Bradwell, was indicted for conjuration of evil spirits and for causing the sickness of the young boy. She, along with nine others from Yarmouth, were held at the Toll House for the next three months. Now, as we've seen, in England, the customary method of execution for witchcraft was that bestowed upon the majority of condemned felons, hanging by the neck. North of the border in Scotland, and across the channel in continental Europe, burning was the traditional end of convicted witches, but in England, the stake was usually reserved for heresy, and some kinds of treason, such as petty treason. If my undergraduate knowledge isn't failing me, petty treason was the act of murdering, or attempting to murder your social superior, wives murdering husbands, children their parents, or servants their masters. It was a pale reflection of high treason, to plot against the father of the kingdom, or mother of the kingdom I suppose, the monarch. It was the betrayal that made such murders so much worse in the eyes of contemporaries. So it is particularly interesting to find reference to a woman called Mary Lakeland being burnt at the stake in Ipswich. She was being executed not only for her witchcraft, but for the crime of murdering her husband with the aid of the devil. As Gaskell puts it, an atrocious sin that damned her as not only a murderous witch, but a traitorous one. She was condemned, in the magistrate's words, in Sendetta ad Sindres, which Gaskill translates into, to be burnt to ashes. Lakeland was taken to the southeast corner of Cornhill. A bell was rung to summon the townsfolk while her crimes were read aloud. Lakeland was lowered into a barrel of pitch to be coated in the flammable substance before she was chained to the stake, set into the ground. It is possible, as at other burnings elsewhere, Lakeland was not burnt alive. She could have been garroted at the stake, or had her life snuffed out with a swift blow to her chest. Either would have been a mercy. The kindling at the base of the stake was lit by the Executioner, and the flames would have quickly spread upwards, engulfing Lakeland. The burning pitch would have given off a tremendous volume of black smoke, making it hard for the crowd to see their morbid spectacle. When the literal smoke cleared, possibly early the next morning, the ashes were raked through to ensure that not even a scrap of Lakeland remained. The young boy, who had been afflicted with a strange disease since Lakeland had supposedly cursed him, miraculously recovered, proving to all that the woman had been justly burnt. Her supposed conspirator, Alice Denham, suffered a more mundane fate, paraded through the city of Ipswich, and then hanged in the market square. As 1645 turned to 1646, the witchfinders continued their work. The nine witches whose cases had been sent to Parliament for their consideration received their acquittals in March. One had already died of plague, and the others remained in prison because they owed the prison the fees for their stay. When plague again swept through Chelmsford, two more of the women, who were now legally acquitted of any crime, died. In April, we find reference to the youngest witch so far in the East Anglian hunt. John Stern had visited the village of Rotham the previous year, where he had interrogated a young boy of either eight or nine years. This child had told Stern of his poverty and outsider status in Rotham, and confessed to Stern that an imp had promised him revenge. Stern, who was a father, was sympathetic to the lad, and was pleased when the jury discharged him due to his age. His mother, however, was charged and executed, leaving the boy seemingly without any parents, his father never being mentioned. When Stern visited the village of Rattlesden, he was disappointed to find the same child had a reputation for sorcery and general malignancy. Stern spoke to him again, and the child admitted that since his mother's death, he had renewed his oath to the devil in return for power and support from the imps. Stern left the boy in the jail at Bury St. Edmund's, and his fate is unknown. By May, the witchfinders had entered Huntingdonshire, the county to the west of Suffolk, It had been over a year since John Stern had been granted the warrant in Manningtree that had begun their crusade, but they showed no sign of stopping. When they reached the town of St. Niotz, the two witchfinders were reunited and working together once more. At this town, they were told by the locals of a woman they had suspected of being a witch. They had searched her twice, but found no incriminating mark or growth to evidence her use of familiars. The woman had, quite naturally, fled from the town after this treatment, but eventually returned, as she had nowhere else to go. This may have been a mistake, as she was immediately mobbed by her neighbours and thrown off a bridge. The intent was to test her with the ordeal by water, and so one of the mob volunteered to go in with her as a control, because of course, the mob had a keen interest in keeping to the scientific method. The woman floated, a sign of guilt, but the magistrates refused to charge her. Professor Gaskill supposes this was because the townsfolk at St. Niot's had violated the edict against using the ordeal by water. Not satisfied, because they had just seen her guilt proven by the river, the mob followed the poor woman back to her house and searched her again. Again, they found no marks to prove that she had suckled an imp, but they did find some bite marks on her neck, Stern then found a farmer who stated that he had set his hound on another dog that had been acting strangely, the implication being that this woman had transformed into a dog and had then been bitten. The fate of this mystery woman is unclear, she may have lost her life at the hands of the law or of the mob, or escaped their tender mercies through the intervention of the leading men of the community. After all, this was as far from an orderly trial as could be imagined and opposition to the trials was steadily increasing. One priest, John Gall of Great Staughton had regularly complained to his fellows that his flock was far too eager to blame witches for their misfortune instead of considering their own actions, and an interview with one of those suspected of witchcraft held in Huntington Jail did nothing to convince him of their guilt. He wrote publicly of his opposition to Hopkins and Stern, and this got back to the Witchfinders. The Witchfinder General, in response to this scepticism, wrote to someone, we don't know exactly who, in Great Stoughton, quote, I have this day received a letter, to come to a town called Great Stoughton, to search for evil disposed persons called witches, though I hear your minister is far against us through ignorance. I have known a minister in Suffolk preach as much, against their discovery in a pulpit, and forced to recount it by the committee in the same place. I much marvel such evil members should have any who should daily preach terror to convince such offenders stand up to take their parts against such as are complainants for the king and suffer themselves with their families and estates. I intend to give your town a visit suddenly. I am to come Kimbolton this week and shall be ten to one, but I will come to your town first but I would certainly know afore whether your town affords many sticklers for such cattle, or willing to give and afford us good welcome and entertainment, as other where I have been, else I shall waive your shire, not as yet beginning in any part of it myself, and betake me to such places where I do, and may persist without control but with thanks and recompense. So I humbly take my leave, and rest, your servant to be commanded. Essentially, I'm not going to come to your village if your priest is going to kick up a fuss. If there was a reply, it has not survived. But it was certainly received, because John Gall read it, and would later compose a response. The Select Cases of Conscience Touching Witches and Witchcrafts, where he questions many of the methods used by Hopkins and Stern, although he does not dispute the existence and danger of witchcraft itself. Gaul and the Witchfinder would be critics of each other throughout the careers of the latter. In February of 1646, Parliament had ordered that the usual judicial procedure begin once more, the military threat having passed, and so the assize judges would return to their circuits. This would be great news for those imprisoned and awaiting trial in Huntington Jail, except... This order would only come into effect at the beginning of June. The Huntingtoners' eyes began in the last days of May, meaning that proceedings were overseen by local magistrates who were less than impartial and, in some ways, less experienced than the circuit judges sent from London. They were zealous members of the Eastern Association, despised by John Gall for their bloodthirstiness, and idolised by the Witchfinder General for the same. There were eight accused witches in the jail at the beginning of the assize. At least five would be condemned, with one acquitted. The witches were hanged at the centre of Huntingdon as John Gall put the finishing touches to his select cases, a full transcript of Matthew Hopkins' incendiary letter, where he admits that one of the main considerations for where he travels is if he'll get political and financial support. The cases was dispatched to a printer in London, and it flew off the shelves as Gold relentlessly tore apart the arbitrary nature of the witch hunt. Professor Gaskell seems to imply that at this point the witchfinder general had passed his zenith; his greatest successes were now behind him, and from now on acquittals and pardons for those witches he identified became more and more commonplace. In May of 1646, Hopkins was invited to the town of Kings Lynn in Norfolk. An invitation he readily accepted once the Huntington' eyes was completed, and he arrived in August. The invitation had been carried by a soldier of the city garrison, and the fees of the witchfinder general were promised to be borne by the town. End quote. When Hopkins arrived, he was escorted into the town like a conquering hero, provided a military escort, and heralded with drums. He got to work immediately and after confirming the suspicious nature of the marks on the bodies of several locals, departed for new pastures with the promise to return for their trial, in exchange for a promise of further payment, of course. When he returned on the 24th of September, nine witches were on trial, eight women, five of them widows, and one man. They all pled not guilty, and so Hopkins was called to the stand. He gave evidence on the one witch whose watching and searching he had witnessed, as well as two others. The other searchers and watchers were called, and soon testimony had been taken against all nine witches. Matthew Hopkins might have relaxed in his chair, as he awaited the surely guilty verdicts. If he was so... lackadaisical, he would have been surprised. Of the nine witches, six were immediately acquitted while another was judged to be non mentis, not of sane mind, and so unfit to be on trial for her life. The two remaining suspects were found guilty and condemned to hang, but nevertheless this was surely a cause of embarrassment for Hopkins. Other trials had had higher acquittal rates, but none when the witch finders had been personally present and on the stand. Hopkins left shortly after, his payment in hand, and tail firmly tucked between his legs. Professor Gaskell considers what had led to this surprising about-face, quote, It is hard to say what happened. Evidently, in the summer of 1646, the Corporation of Kingslyn had felt passionately that, despite its financial commitments to maintain the garrison, control plague and relieve the poor, it should employ a witchfinder to stop diabolists bringing the city to its knees. Yet, when those people were brought to trial... The well-to-do citizens on the jury doubted the evidence brought before them. Hopkins had not been invited to identify specific witches, that was the responsibility of the townsfolk, but to gather and record effective proof against those already presumed to be guilty. He had been paid a lot, but produced little. His days as a witchfinder were numbered, if not thanks to the sceptics and the sticklers, then because hiring him no longer made commercial sense. Just days after the session at King's Lynn, John Godbold, the magistrate who had been part of the special commission at the Bury St. Edmund's trial, oversaw on his eyes at the Isle of Ely. Here, all three women on trial for witchcraft were acquitted, either due to poor judicial process during their interrogation, or based on the quality of the evidence. Hopkins and his searchers had again been involved in their prosecution, and this was yet another blow to his reputation. The most public criticism of Hopkins came at the Norwich Azize in the spring of 1647. Now, whether or not the Witchfinder General was there in person, questions were publicly raised by the judges on behalf of a group of leading citizens of the city. These questions were clearly influenced by the work of John Gall, whose treaties had been ravenously devoured by the gentlemen of the Eastern Association and beyond. If Hopkins was there, he may have been examined as if it was a prosecution. If he was not, no matter, for the criticisms were printed and publicised far and wide. Hopkins attempted to refute these criticisms with his own publication, simply called The Discovery of Witches. This can be found quite easily online, it's very short and I would recommend giving it a read through if you have the time. Essentially, it is a list of criticisms that the Witchfinder General had faced and his responses to them. From where did he get his knowledge of witch-finding? Was his success not itself proof of his own allegiance with the devil? Was he simply a charlatan, fleecing his countrymen for coin? The answer that Hopkins gives to that last question is quite simply a lie. I mean, he lies in most of the other responses as well, but that one is the most blatant. Lastly, judge how he fleeceth the country, and enriches himself by considering the vast sum he takes of every town. He demands but twenty shillings a town and doth sometimes ride twenty miles for that, and hath no more for all his charges thither and back again. And it may be stays a week there, and finds there three or four witches, or if it be but one, cheap enough, and this is the great sum he takes to maintain his company with three horses. Oh, Matthew, 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 so many lies. Hopkins and all his party were paid far more by each parish than he claimed here. Kingslyn, gave him £15 for his services, the equivalent of a year and a half of work for the drummer who heralded his arrival. He was paid again upon testifying. The village of Stowmarket paid him at least £23. For perspective, that amount of money would take an artisan over a year of six-day weeks to earn. After the witch hunt came to Alderborough, the local corporation was left with a hole in its budget of £40. Similar debts were racked up in Yarmouth and Ipswich, where measures were put in place to limit the number of witches accused in the future simply because it cost too much to bring them to trial. On top of their fees, at each stop the witchfinders expected, and often received, their bed and board costs to be covered. At Alderborough, Hopkins and his entourage racked up at least £4 solely in drinks at their inn. They returned to testify and were again paid for their efforts and their bed. Now, obviously, much of the cost of the witch trials was down to holding the suspects in jail until their trial and the excessive costs of the trials themselves. But Matthew Hopkins and his followers made serious money from their work, and his claim to only receive the minimum amount needed to continue his godly crusade is complete and utter rubbish. Professor Gaskill describes the discovery as, quote, weighed down by blithe evasion, hamfisted wit, and mealy-mouthed qualification, end quote. Aside from the issue of payment, he lied about the method of extracting confessions. He claimed he had ceased to use sleep deprivation as a method of interrogation, and that those witches who could not sleep while being watched were kept awake because, quote, their own stubborn wills did not let them sleep, though tended and offered to them, end quote. Completely ignoring the fact that such suspects were tied to uncomfortable chairs and stools and prodded occasionally to summon their imps. Yes, Matthew, of course. The only thing keeping these women awake was their conscience. He further denied making witches walk around to keep them awake, or of asking leading questions, or of using testimony of blatantly impossible actions like transformation and flight in prosecutions, which had been decreed illegitimate, while also defending his use if he had, which he hadn't, but if he had, because James I said it was okay. This manuscript of lies, which it was, was sent to London for printing. He commissioned a highly detailed carving to act as the front page, the famous depiction of Hopkins surrounded by Elizabeth Clarke and Rebecca West, and their named familiars. This print was also the first recorded use of his title, the Witchfinder General. Hopkins penned his response after the Norwichers' eyes, and then he became crippled by illness. He had dizzy spells, fatigue, was unable to bring himself to eat, and oh, if only he could shake this blasted cough. In the opinion of Professor Gaskell, Hopkins had most likely contracted TB from his long hours in cramped, damp, inhospitable dungeons interrogating and watching suspected witches for hours. He took to bed, in his home, in Manningtree, still in his twenties, while John Stern picked up the slack. In Sutton, Stern found a woman who confessed to a diabolical pact so nothing too unusual here, let's move on. Except it was unusual. Normally in confessions, witchcraft was a result of grievous sins. Lust, or greed, or wrath, a spurned advance, or being rejected for charity was the bread and butter of a demonic pact. But in this confession, by Margaret Moore, the pact had been made out of love. Moore had been mother to four children, but as was sadly common, three of them did not survive childhood with her fourth child sickly and weak. It seemed like Moore would lose all of her children, despite her prayers to God. She testified to a magistrate, quote, "'She heard a voice calling to her after this manner, Mother, Mother,' to which the said Margaret answered, "'Sweet children, where are you? What would you have of me?' And they demanded of her drink, which the said Margaret answered that she had no drink.' Then there came a voice which the same Margaret conceived to be her third child, and demanded of her her soul, otherwise she would take the life of her fourth child, which was the only child she had left, to which voice the said Margaret made answer that rather than she would lose her last child, she would consent unto giving away her soul, and then a spirit in the likeness of a naked child appeared to her and suckled upon her body. On the twelfth of august sixteen forty seven Matthew Hopkins died in his bed in Manningtree, and on the same day was buried in the churchyard of St. Mary at Misley Heath. He lived a short life, certainly being no older than his twenties when he died, and had devoted the last few years of his life to the pious cause of haunting the enemies of God. His piety was surely a sign that he was one of the elect, the few predetermined to enter heaven at least that might be how he saw it. I see him as an otherwise unexceptional man who, through the sheer chance of being in Manningtree with John Stern, took part in a ruthless and bloodthirsty crusade driven by zealotry and delusion, and not a small amount of financial greed. Convinced of his self-importance and exuding the confidence that only a religious zealot can have, he bluffed his way through trials and into towns, subjecting the social outcasts he found there to torture, leading them on to receive the correct confession, and disappearing onto the next town as soon as his extortionate fee was paid. In his wake, he left villagers crippled with debt, condemned men and women hanging from the gallows, and countless others festering in awful conditions while they awaited the lumbering wheel of wartime bureaucracy to confirm their innocence. Saying that, I may be being too harsh on the man. After all, he could not have acted alone. He required a society that was ready and willing to condemn its own members, either through genuine belief in their guilt, or more mundane desires for revenge. Hopkins himself surely believed that he was doing the right thing. I don't suppose for one moment that this was all about the financial gain he could receive. That was just an added benefit, and one that he felt ashamed enough to repeatedly lie about. And not to blame the victims, many of whom were subjected to torture and ordeals by their accusers, but there are strong arguments that often the confessions were genuine. Not genuine in the sense that these men and women were actually witches, of course not, but that a large minority believed that they were, and that they deserved punishment. This was an intensely religious society, and often the root of their confessions was a genuine belief that they had sinned against God that they had failed as a mother, that their angry cursing of their neighbour had caused the death of a cow or a child. Throw in some sleep deprivation and other coercive techniques, and a dash of leading questions, and these men and women could quite easily be convinced that they had made pacts with demons. Margaret Moore confessed three times to three different groups, seemingly willingly, possibly because she had, in her grief in losing her children, hallucinated their return. Alexander Sussams had willingly approached Stern and asked to be searched because he believed that he was a witch. A woman at the village of Streatham, Elizabeth Foote, was convinced that the growths on her body were witch teats, not because she believed she'd signed a deal with the devil, but because her mother was rumoured to have been a witch. Purely because she had made her panic known, a group of local women searched her and she was put on trial. If Hopkins had been active five years early or five years later, he would not have found a society so willing and eager to receive him. As it was, he could not have asked for a better hunting ground. For Stern, it was time to call it quits and return to his family. He was in Ely when Hopkins passed, and though he stayed for the assize, headed by our old friend John Godbold, he returned to the Laws Hall in December. The witch hunt was over. It was not an easy retirement, however. Resentment over the cost of the witch hunt flared up across East Anglia, and lawsuits had been filed against him to oppose false accusations and recover the costs of the trials. In response to the growing fallout of his short career, Stern penned a follow-up to Hopkins' tiny treatise, a confirmation and discovery of witchcraft. It was suitably pious, with many anecdotes from his travels interspersed with passages from the Bible but it was also largely copied from an earlier text, The Guide to Grand jury Men. As Gaskell wonderfully puts it, quote, "...25,000 words of plagiarism, anecdote and nostalgia laced with exegesis and elliptical arguments and peppered with snorts of derision and the occasional shudder. Stern must have felt better for having transferred his besieged conscience to the page." Quote. This was not the end of the witch trials in England, however. Over the Second Civil War, the Regicide, the Commonwealth, and the Restoration would be smattered witch accusations and trials. Witch finders were just catalysts for the suspicions of others, and their death and retirement did not see the end of trials. Stern would have faced continued hostility for his actions, and any wealth he gained from the hunt appears to have disappeared by 1651, when he claimed, at a court case, to only be worth £5, just over the amount that Hopkins had spent in one pub in the east of England. That is where we will leave off today. This marks a break in looking at early modern England, which we have been looking at since November of last year and over 16 episodes. Quite frankly, I need a break before we return to look at events in Scotland, in Spain, and across the Atlantic in New England, so next week we will go back to the past or at least further back into the past, for a run of episodes on the early medieval world. We'll be looking at witch beliefs in the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire next week, and then episodes on witchcraft in Anglo Saxon England and Frankish Europe. As always, thank you to my patrons. The Hammer of the Witches Executor Today, Witch Finder General Michelle G, my Inquisitors, Elaine D., Trish G, and newcomer Jean B, and all of my demonologists and theologians. They're all wonderful people and you can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash history of witchcraft besides supporting the podcast and me financially please consider leaving a review on apple podcasts stitcher podchaser or wherever it is you find your good podcasts it all helps grow the show and gives me a warm fuzzy feeling when i see the downloads grow you can always drop me an email at witchcraftpodcast@gmail.com, or message me on twitter or on the facebook page at hist of witch and the history of witchcraft podcast respectively The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.